We are back. We're speaking with Phil Plate about things beyond the moon, and in some cases beyond Pluto. Well, as we speak today, we are a few weeks away from something that's going to be perhaps very exciting. The New Horizons spacecraft, which whipped past Pluto a couple years back, is now going to make a close flyby of another Kuiper Belt object, something else that's in that astronomical zoo, a piece of ice, presumably out in the deep reaches, the deep freeze of the, the outer solar system. We've never seen one of these before. This, this promises to be, you know, quite entertaining. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. I mean, this is as exciting as the Pluto flyby in many senses. So the solar system that we think of when you picture it in your head, you know, you've got the sun and the planets, and then out past the, the outer planets, out past Neptune, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of these rocky ice balls. And we call this region the Kuiper Belt. There are actually a lot of different names for it. That's one of them um, after a, a, an astrophysicist who proposed it might be out there. Uh, in the 1990s, the first of these objects were discovered. They're, they range in size from you know, small, hundreds of yards across, to quite large, a thousand miles across or more. Pluto is basically the biggest of these. And there are a handful of them out there that are r- roughly that size. A lot of them are a lot smaller. Well, once the New Horizons spacecraft passed Pluto a few years ago, the astronomers realized, hey, you know what? We're going out into the Kuiper Belt. Maybe there's one close enough on our path that we can swing past it and take a look. So we pointed Hubble into that part of the sky, found an object, and they gave it the name 2014 MU69. Uh, that's the, the catalog name. And it's got an unofficial name of Ultima Thule. And it turns out, uh, observations from the ground from here on Earth, this thing might be a binary object, two roughly spherical icy rocks orbiting each other, or it might be like a bowling ball pin, something tumbling around, and and, uh, we don't know. Uh, It it, it could just be something elongated with a narrow neck between it. We see a lot of objects like that. The European Rosetta probe looked at the comet, uh, now get this, uh, 67P churyumov gerasimenko um, I've said that enough times that I tend not to stumble on it too much. And that's what that thing looks like. It looks like a rubber ducky, like yeah. two objects connected by a narrow neck. So in this case, MU69, these two objects, they may be something like 20 to 40 kilometers across, maybe, let's see, translate that into English, 12 to 25 miles across, orbiting each other. We don't know because you can't tell from Earth. When New Horizons passes this thing, and mind you, it's on January 1st, it's New Year's Eve, it'll take close-up pictures of, of one of these objects for the first time, and we'll find out a lot more about it. And it'll take about a day for those pictures to come back. New Horizons, I mean, we're talking about an object that is something like 6 billion miles away. So it takes a while for the data um, at the bit rate that this thing sends it back. It's so far away, the signal's weak. So it takes about a day for it to, to get its first images back. But when we see them, it's going to be very cool. I cannot wait to see those pictures. Final question I have for you, Phil, I think would be out there in the in the outer reaches of the solar system, past Ultima Thule and all this. I don't know whether you're a betting man, but I wonder how you would handicap the odds of us finding Planet X. The conjecture that it's out there is based on some very strange orbits we see of, of objects that are way out there. Do you think we're going to find it? Wow, you know, that's a really good question. I am a betting man, <laughs> but I like to know what I'm betting on, and This is a very, very interesting issue. There are objects even farther out than the Kuiper Belt called Oort cloud objects and and scattered disk objects. There are a lot of different things out there that have different names. 
because of their orbits and, and the shapes of their orbits and how long they take to orbit the sun and all of that. And you expect a lot of these things to be very elliptical orbits, very elongated, tipped and rotated every which way to the sun. And as we started discovering these things, and by we, I just mean astronomers in general, um, I'm just sitting here at my house. I don't actually go out and observe these things, but other astronomers do. And as more of these things were discovered, their orbits were kind of lining up. They were all kind of tilted at the same angle and all kind of having a lot of the same characteristics. And so some other astronomers said, you know, I think maybe there could be a big planet out there, something in between the size of Earth and Neptune, maybe four, five, ten times the mass of the Earth, maybe even more, that is affecting the orbits of these things. And using the physics of orbits, they've actually predicted where it might be. And so um, Mike Brown is one of these astronomers at UCLA, is out observing. And even as we are recording this right now, he is on a mountain looking for what he calls Planet Nine, because he doesn't consider Pluto a planet. This would be the, the true ninth planet orbiting the sun. It might very well be out there. The evidence is really compelling. It's not 100%. It's very, very interesting that these orbits are all messed up. It's very interesting they're all messed up in the same way, um, but it's not conclusive proof. It's circumstantial. So I'd be very, very, very curious. I totally support looking for this planet. I think it's a very exciting thing to do, and if they find it, amazing. And if they don't find it, huh, you know, why are these orbits all screwed up if, if there's no planet out there tweaking them? And that's an interesting question, too. Well, we hope that someday in the not-too-distant future we can have Mike Brown on this program. He's, he's a harder man to get a hold of than, than most, but uh, I know he's busy out there looking in deep space, <laughs> but so maybe he'll find it and we'll talk to him about it. You know, I lied, I lied a moment ago. I do have one final question I just wanted to throw okay. at you. We had the pleasure some years back of interviewing James Randi, who is quite a character, and I, and I was surprised to realize that you, you work with him a bit. Oh, I used to quite some time ago. Yeah, I was part of the critical thinking movement 10 years ago or so, which is basically just uh, this idea that people should try to draw conclusions based on the evidence and be aware of ways that we can be fooled. If you can basically summarize a, a big movement into a single sentence. And so, you know, if somebody makes a claim, especially an extraordinary claim, you have to ask yourself, what's the evidence for this? But you also have to ask, What's the evidence against it? And where am I easily fooled by something? Is this person a con artist? Or are there just sort of internal biases that we have that make us think something is real when it isn't? Uh, like optical illusions are great examples of this, right? Mm -hmm. It's really yeah. easy to fool your brain into seeing something that's not real. And it's very easy to believe in something that's not real. Uh, you had mentioned Nibiru earlier. That, uh, this, this idea of a giant planet in the outer solar system that comes into the inner solar system, it turns out the evidence for it is bad. The evidence against <laughs> it is great. And there are a lot of people who want to believe in something like that. And so it makes them much more susceptible to that sort of idea. Whereas if you know the astronomy, it's like, yeah, no, not so much. Uh, and so that was, um, that was an interesting time. I was um, working with uh, Randy and his group, the James Randy Educational Foundation, trying to sort of debunk ideas about psychics, alternative medicine, bad science, all that sort of stuff. Well, we're with you on that. In closing, Phil, are there any, any websites you can send us to for the work you're doing? Well, my blog is called Bad Astronomy. It's hosted on sci-fi.com, and that's S-Y-F-Y.com. You can find me on Twitter. I'm Bad Astronomer. should be pretty easy. You just look up my name. Uh, you'll find me. I've been around a long time. I'm all over the web. Well, 
It's Phil. It's been a great pleasure to speak with you again, and I, I hope sometime in the future you'll be back. All right. Thank you very much. I'd be happy to. Phil Plate is always fun to talk to. I hope we can bring him back in 2019. And according to what I can find on the Internet, the New Horizons spacecraft will be making its rendezvous with Ultima Thule about midnight on New Year's Eve. Now, that's Eastern time. So if I had a choice, I'd much rather watch photos from a Kuiper Belt object that are being sent back to Earth than, say, the ball dropping in Times Square. But evidently, the perfect timing of this event is ruined by the fact that it is actually six light hours away. New Horizons will make its flyby, snap some pictures, and it's going to take six full hours for that electronic signal to reach us here on planet Earth. So I guess we're going to have to wait till New Year's morning. And here's a curious twist to this story. Yes, guitarist Brian May of Queen, who is also an astrophysicist, has gotten involved with the good people at New Horizons and is composing some music for this visit. Brian May is one sharp guy. Looking at the NASA website, I observed that when the New Horizons flew past Pluto in July of 2015, where does the time go? Brian May set aside two images of Pluto taken a short time apart, that produced a wonderful stereoscopic image. I, I, I presume it produced a wonderful stereoscopic image because I don't have a way of viewing it and confirming that, but I'm sure it works. I'm sure it's very cool, and I want to take my hat off to Brian May for thinking of it. And we look forward to hearing his music, which we do not yet have our hands on when the flyby takes place on New Year's Day. Man, that, that Voyager flyby of Pluto seems like it took place yesterday. July of 2015. Of course, the mission was launched, New Horizons, 13 years ago from Cape Canaveral. If you intend to get out to Pluto and beyond, you're going to need some time to do it. And it's been 41 years since the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 spacecraft were launched with a mission to visit the gas giants of our solar system and eventually continue out into interstellar space. Every time we talk about Voyager 2, I'm embarrassed to say, we keep saying, you know, we got to get scientist Ed Stone on this program to talk about it. Well, you can still find Ed Stone on the web talking about the breaking news, I think, that Voyager 2 has evidently now joined Voyager 1 in, quote-unquote, leaving the solar system. Yours truly is struggling a bit with this issue of leaving the solar system. And, and now, now where's Phil Plate when I need him? But it's widely assumed there'll be this thing called the heliopause out there. Well, there'll be not necessarily a sharp demarcation, a rather fuzzy line, a line that moves in and out between what is the space dominated by our sun, in essence the solar system, and interstellar space. It appears there's a lot of different definitions of what constitutes interstellar space. And since we're dependent upon instruments telling us about charged particles hitting the spacecraft to make the determination, well, in my mind, it's just, it's just a little fuzzy. As, as I understand it, Voyager 2 has now joined Voyager 1 in indicating that there's been a spike in cosmic rays, presumably from deep space, hitting the spacecraft, and a, a decrease in the number of low-energy particles which can be attributed to the sun. You know, so far, so good, I think. But when I, I read that <laughs> that the data was 
confused by the flux tubes that Voyager 2 was encountering. I started thinking maybe I don't need Phil Plate to answer this one, but instead, Chief Engineer Montgomery Scott from the Starship Enterprise. Yes, it does seem like we need Scotty announcing to Kirk that, Captain, we've encountered flux tubes. I can't change the laws of physics. I've got to have 30 minutes. And yes, I'm sure you're saying to yourself, the listener, well, why doesn't he cure his ignorance by bringing Ed Stone on to explain this? Well, that, that remains a good idea. Perhaps we'll actually do it. And heck, if we get Ed Stone, we should try to get Brian May on, too. Wouldn't that be fun? And in other news from deep space, in this case, really deep space, uh, scientists have now concluded that they found another galaxy orbiting our own Milky Way. It's a, a rather confusing mess in my mind. Apparently, our Milky Way has been crashed into or has crashed into various other galaxies over the eons, which I suppose raises that question of, well, how do we know if that star a thousand light years away is from the Milky Way or, or from another galaxy. And if you know the answer to that, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. One thing I did noodle around a bit on the internet was to take a look at, um, at the previous New Horizons flyby of Pluto, which as we now know was back in July of 2015. I was curious as to how the new object we're going to take a look at, Ultima Thule, compared to the other smaller moons of Pluto, and it turns out that Pluto, much to everybody's surprise, has five moons. Charon, the largest, is over half the size of Pluto itself, making the Pluto-Charon system really a double, well, I guess not quite planet, <laughs> but rather, I guess, a double dwarf planet system. And uh, the photos that uh, New Horizons took of Charon were, were, were darn near as interesting as the ones it took of Pluto. But uh, the next two smaller moons of Pluto, called Nix and Hydra, are actually, apparently, both larger than the Kuiper Belt object we're going to get a look at on the first of the year. So I suppose it's a bit of a shame we didn't get a closer look at those two small moons in order to compare them to what we're going to get a look at, but uh, they had bigger fish to fry on that mission its purpose was to get some good, high-quality photos of Pluto, and boy, did it succeed. All right, sadly, at this point, I think we, we have to go back to planet Earth. Aww. Although one might argue that we actually do have gas giants here on planet Earth in the guise of Donald J. Trump. We're not going to do much politics on today's program, but we just have to say that when your lawyer, who's making payments for you to your mistresses, to keep the information away from the public during an election, get sent away to jail for three years, you might expect that Trump would at least admit that the incidents actually happened. But no, he's not willing to go there. Not only did the incidents not happen, his lawyer misled him about the hush money payments that were being made, leading the president to believe that this was all above board. Now, we're not saying that seems like a far-out idea, but uh, when last seen, it was passing the Crab Nebula. All right, let's go from the world of the large to the world of the very small. In this case, spiders. We don't traditionally do a lot of stories related to arachnids on Radio Parallax, but here are two we think you will find interesting. We certainly don't think of these eight-legged creatures as bearing a resemblance to mammals. 
But according to new scientist Averjangui Chain at the Chinese Academy of Science, spotted the young of a species he was studying clinging to its mother's abdomen, he investigated further. Chen and colleagues put mother spiders under the microscope and gently squeezed their abdomens. You think you have a tough job. A creamy white fluid came out, which looked similar to human or other mammalian milk. Analysis found the liquid contains fat and about four times as much protein as cow's milk. When the team prevented the mother spiders from excreting the liquid, the baby spiders died in 10 days, meaning that this, quote, milk, unquote, is indispensable for the survival of these newborn spiders. Even more interesting, perhaps, while these young Toxius magnus spiders start hunting for food 20 days after hatching, they don't wean off their mom until they're 40 days old. They note that though milk secretion is exclusive to mammals, the team has nevertheless named this new liquid spider milk. Now, we know they carry some exotic items over at Whole Foods, but we don't think this one will be appearing anytime soon, and I want to add to that, and I certainly hope not. And yes, there was a news item not too long ago about cockroaches excreting an extremely nutritious fluid. All I can say to that is, you first. This truly is an interesting story, however. The Toxius magnus is a jumping spider native, native to Southeast Asia. And they must be doing something right because its young grew shockingly fast. They reached almost half adult size in the first 20 days of their life, despite the fact that neither the youngsters nor their mother left the nests to gather food. That's when they took a closer look and discovered spider milk. All right, here's another spider-related story that relates to, I guess you'd say, light pollution, something we rail about on this program. And just as an aside, I was driving down Highway 880 in the East Bay a few days ago and noticed, this is at night, that they're now putting up streetlights that overhang the freeway so that for every inch of your journey, you have lights shining down into the car ensuring that you will have minimal night vision at your disposal while you're driving at night. In my opinion, this is an incredibly idiotic idea. But it looks like we're going to have it all through the East Bay. I hope it doesn't catch on in other places. Some months back, we were up in the Sierra with a telescope trying to look at various uh, planets. And in the middle of that, as always seems to happen, a knucklehead blunders into the scene waving around his or her LED flashlight and robbing everyone of their night vision for the next 10 minutes. But I digress. Most spiders avoid light, as we all know, because besides being predators, they are also prey. But, as you have no doubt noted, there are a set of circumstances in which living beside a powerful light could be an advantage. Well, if you're a web-weaving spider... It's a fact that moths and other insects are attracted to sources of illumination, such as streetlights, the kind found in cities and and these days over freeways. It would therefore make sense if urban web-spinning spiders lost some of their photophobia. If they could set up shop besides lights, well, there'd be a bonanza at their disposal. Well, apparently researchers at the University of Regensburg in Germany took a look at this. And what do you know? They found lots of fat Happy arachnids building webs near Regenberg's street lamps. They dug into the research and discovered that urban moth populations, to the contrary, have been shown to be less attracted to lights than their rural relatives, which only makes sense. 
evolution in action. Of course, that's if you believe all that science stuff. Anyway, this is only a trend. They did some further experiments with uh, spiderlings building webs. They found out that uh, two-thirds of the rural young spiders would build webs in the dark part of boxes they were put in, but only half of their urban cousins did likewise. And we often enjoy the letters section of New Scientist magazine. Here's one that caught my eye. A man wrote from Derby in the UK saying, A man was apparently declared dead because DNA from a decomposed corpse was 99.92% likely to be his. When he turned up alive and well, we were reminded to think of that 0.08%. John Cantillo asked, Should a jury in a murder trial be persuaded of a suspect's guilt by a similar likelihood? Well, that is an interesting question. If, if done properly, DNA analysis is an incredibly powerful tool, but uh, like anything else, there's ways to do it wrong. Or perhaps in this case, they did it exactly right. It was just a statistical fluke. This, of course, will come as no surprise to O.J. Simpson, whose billion-to-one DNA match to the crime scene admittedly does not rule out all other humans on planet Earth. All right, let's do one of our perennial favorites in this program, the good, the bad, and the ugly. magazine it was a good week for global warming last week with the news that farmers in northern alberta are cutting down forests to create more cropland now that climate change allows them to grow corn and soybeans instead of only wheat and canola temperatures around the town of la crete are 3.6 degrees fahrenheit warmer on average annually than they were back in 1950 the growing season is now two weeks longer Farming is now more profitable, which has caused the price of farmland to more than double over the past 10 years. So yeah, let's lop down the forests and put in some soybeans. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for speeding. Last week, with the news that a German teenager lost his driver's license 49 minutes after receiving it. The unnamed 18-year-old was clocked at 60 in a 30 zone prompting a philosophical German police spokesman to say, well, some things last forever, others not for an hour. And it was surely an ugly week for denials last week when a British prison inmate claimed that a cell phone that guards found secreted up his rectum wasn't his. That was until guards found contact information for his friends and relatives on the phone's SIM card. Thus, Dylan Martin's sentence got extended six months. All right, we're big advocates of travel on this program and expect uh, in 2019 to talk more about places one might wish to go and how to do it. Uh, and this is always a big section in, in the papers, which I still read, and I think you should too. But my, my eyes caught this headline that said, Nine Top New Under-the-Radar Destinations for 2019. I'm into checking out under-the-radar destinations. But the picture that accompanied the article showed this under-the-radar destination of Los Cabos in Cabo San Lucas. 
The picture was of the very photogenic Los Arcos right off the uh, off the beach. And I had to say to myself, now there's a place you never hear about. Cabo San Lucas. That sounds like a great place to get away from crowds. Actually, I'm sad to report that yours truly did visit Cabo San Lucas back in the 1970s when there were three, count them, three hotels in the town. It was at that time a sleepy little fishing village. And uh, I have to say I liked it better then than I do now. Also on this list, however, were, were the Azores. And I think we talked a little bit in previous programs about a visit there and, and may do so again. That is off the beaten track and I think under the radar, but uh, worth considering. All right, we're talking about spiders a moment ago, so let's talk about the man who brought us Spider-Man. Stan Lee passed away last month. Obituaries note that in 1961, Stan Lee tore up the comics rulebook. He was a writer at Marvel Comics, and he was bored with churning out generic stories filled with cardboard characters. So when Lee was instructed to create a team of superheroes that would challenge rival DC Comics' new Justice League of America, he saw a chance to push the format's limits. Together with artist Jack Kirby, Lee dreamed up the Fantastic Four. Unlike the bland and perfect Superman, the Fantastic Four were very human. They squabbled, they struggled with self-doubt and angst. I tried to make them real flesh and blood characters, said Lee. The comic was a hit. Marvel's circulation nearly doubled to 13 million in a year, and in 1962, Lee introduced his defining hero, the neurotic, wisecracking Spider-Man. As editor and later publisher of Marvel, Stan Lee was superhumanly productive, helping create Black Panther, the Incredible Hulk, the X-Men, and the Mighty Thor. The Marvel Universe now offers bottomless material for Disney blockbusters, and while Stan Lee wasn't involved in the movie productions, he delighted in his creation's ubiquity. He wrote, If I may be totally candid, I'm my biggest fan. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches thieves just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Our thanks to Phil Plate, astronomer and the author of the Bad Astronomy blog. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week. In the chill of night, at the scene of a crime, like a streak of light, he arrives just in time. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, friendly neighborhood Spider-Man, wealth and fame, he's ignored. Action is his reward to him. Life is a great big pain up. Wherever there's a hang up, you'll find the Spider-Man.